On stage 18 of the 2020 Giro d'Italia, the race was blown apart on the Stelvio when Team Sunweb came to the front. Immediately putting the Maglia Rosa in danger. Halfway down the climb, Joao Almeida lost contact, Vincenzo Nibali as well, and we very quickly had a group of two plus two. It was a pre-race plan for Team Sunweb to distance the pink jersey on the Stelvio, and the plan was going well until the team leader, Wilco Kelderman, was also dropped. Wilco Kelderman, very close to the top left behind, Hindley having to follow Theo Gagan Hart. As for the Aussie Jai Hindley staying with the two riders from Ineos Grenadiers, there certainly were questions being asked during and after the stage about whether Hindley should have stayed with his team leader instead. But from the team car, it was clear Jai had team orders to stay with the Ineos Grenadier riders. Come on, Wilco, keep fighting. Come on. You cannot follow. You cannot follow. Jais, just stay in the wheel of Teo. Stay in the wheel of Teo. In the end, Jai was able to come away with the stage win, and Kelderman had enough time left to pull on the pink jersey as the leader of the race. Two days later, it was Hindley's turn to pull on the pink jersey. It's something I've, uh, I've dreamed about since I was a little boy, you know, to wear the leader's jersey of a Grand Tour is an incredible privilege and, uh, yeah, it's not, it's, not, it's not ideal to take it off Wilco, but it's, uh, it's nice to keep it in the team and, yeah, just lost for words. In the end, Henley wore the pink jersey for a total of 19 minutes as he lost time and the race to Theo Gagenhart in the final time trial. With the two young riders, Hindley and Kelderman, for Team Sunweb coming in second and third, this was a standout moment for Team Sunweb. It wasn't a win, but winning stages, leading the race, and wearing pink against the team with the biggest budget in pro cycling, from the outside looking in, it must have seemed like a win. And it raised a question. What was behind Team Sunweb's success? Welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast, the weekly podcast where a panel of scientists, pro cyclists, and cutting-edge coaches discuss topics in training, performance, and science, and all things cycling. The show is co-hosted by Cyrus Monk, who is a professional cyclist and cycling coach, Dr. Jason Boynton, who is a sports scientist and cycling coach, and then there's me, Damien Roos, a professional cycling coach. It wasn't just the Giro in 2020, but also the Tour de France and other races that gave Team Sunweb an incredible season. And seasons like this take years of work and a team of people. One of those people is the 2020 coach of Jai Hindley and Wilco Kelderman, Dejo Sanders, PhD. And while we've discussed the role of coaches in an athlete's success on the last episode, today it's more about understanding how the performance group at now Team DSM works, and more importantly, how an experienced practitioner like Dejo thinks about performance, and what that means for his riders, his team, and of course, there are takeaways for me and you as well. But before we dive into the conversation, a little bit more on who Dejo Sanders is. If you've been around pro cycling or cycling performance research in the last five years, you would know his name from the steady stream of papers that is published in the field. But he goes beyond this research. Dejo is a lot of things to a lot of different people. 
sports scientist, physiologist, supervisor, researcher, but currently... If I would have to say in one word what my job at the moment is, would be then a, a trainer at, yeah, at Team DSM. Um, and yeah, sort of the academic side of things, that's sort of separate from that. I still, I'm still quite active with, or try to be active with publishing and have some collaborations with different universities. Um, and yeah, I still, that's more just for me a side thing that I just enjoy doing and yeah, staying involved with the scientific community. And in that role, he's currently coaching writers like Romar Bardet and Taman Artisman, a name to watch out for in the coming year. Trust me on that one. This current role is off the back of many years focused on trying to solve the performance puzzle, as Dejo puts it. Starting off as a junior writer, he gave himself until the end of U23 to make it as a professional cyclist. When that deadline came... So yeah, I basically decided at the end of my 23 I wasn't going to uh, continue. At that time during my studies, I was already doing some internships with professional teams. So for my undergrad, I did internship with, uh, with Belkin Pro Team, um, or no, with uh, Orvo Shimano actually at the time, which is uh, what now eventually turned into Team DSM. And for my MSc degree, I did an internship with what was Belkin Pro Team at the time, and it's now a Jumbo Visma. And that really sparked my interest in sort of the scientific approach to training and like the application of research into practice. And that then sort of led me into yeah, considering to do a PhD and eventually moved to the UK, did my PhD there, which was all anchored around cycling again. And then continued on basically what I started with also the internships, just trying to do research within cycling. This research has produced many papers. I see a count of 30 publications on his ResearchGate account, some of which we will get into with him. All of this, and he isn't even 30 yet. He's 29, soon to be 30, and has already accomplished so much. So let's get to it. We join the conversation with Jason talking about when he first met Dejo. Where I originally met you was at the ECSS in 2018 in Dublin. And me being the awkward sort that I am, I just walked up to you and be like, you're Dejo Sanders. <laughs> and I don't even remember what the conversation was, but like, thanks for uh, putting up with me there. And then we've had some messages back and forth on LinkedIn since then. So when I, you know, would look up, when I creep the world tour teams and look to see who is where in terms of performance staff in American English is something that's very different. It'd be like a personal trainer or something like that. So how does the trainer role differ from like maybe what would be considered like a performance manager or a coach or something like that? What's the day in the life of a trainer? And are you guys just using a different term for the same role or is another team? Yeah, I guess it's it's perhaps a little bit confusing because there's yeah, multiple teams call it different things, I guess. Um, because yeah, I know a lot of teams, they, they use sort of the, the guy that writes the training programs. They call him, for example, a performance coach. And then you have the sort of sports director and sits in the car in the race. They also call them a coach. So it can sometimes be a little bit confusing. But I guess the main differentiating factor is that, yeah, as a trainer, how, how we conceptualize it and within a team is that then you're, you're responsible for the physical preparation and yeah, writing the training programs and anything related to that. And then obviously we, then we also have, um, yeah, coaches employed within the team where they are called coaches, which is then, um, it divided into two parts. Uh, one part is just the sort of the sports director or what we call the race coach, um, which then mainly has the focus to make sure everything around the race runs smooth to start with, but also just having that sort of tactical uh, overview during the races and guiding the riders on that front. Um, 
So basically what the difference there is then that the race coach tries to sort of tactically exploit the physical ability of the rider and then the trainer is then mainly responsible for preparing the rider from a physical perspective for that race. Um, and then also within the team we have yeah what we then call personal coaches. So that's, I guess, more of a mentoring role mm-hmm. uh, where that a person and has a number of athletes sort of use them mentoring and um, yeah, as a lot of um, yeah, they basically just are involved with a lot of other processes besides sort of the physical element. Um, you know, it might be logistics or other factors that they um, yeah that are in quite close contact with um, with the rider and just sort of the person the rider can go to for to discuss loads of other things if he has uncertainties or what, what whatever. Um, and then sort of the trainer role is mainly just focusing on on the physical side of things and. Um, yeah, I guess that's the main differentiating factor, but it, I understand it's a bit confusing because other teams also just call my role a coach. And um, yeah, this I know in, in, in English probably you would normally call it a coach what I'm currently doing. Um, but yeah, that's, I guess, how we differentiate between them. Yeah, it actually, it actually to us, and maybe our listeners, it's maybe not as confusing as you would think because we, I don't know if you caught our paradigms episode where we were talking about performance paradigms and we were making comparisons between formula one and what potentially would be good models within this world tour cycling world or elite or maybe even like just uh fast amateurs in terms of you know dividing well we use the um the analogy of what comes to the line in a formula one race so you would have your driver and you'd have your chassis of the car and then you'd have an engine and in that role in Formula One, you would have you would have an engineer to work on your engine. You would have some engineers and mechanics to work on your chassis. And then for the driver, you would have a mentor to help them. But in cycling, it's different because your engine and your driver are the same entity. And what's weird is within cycling, sometimes you get mentors that are also trying to build engines we've kind of laid it out as like, well, we're just people on the outside looking in and, you know, this model might actually work better in terms of, you know, having like X pros and that being the mentoring or the kind of coaching role as you guys have, and then have people with sports science backgrounds doing the the engine building side of it, which sounds exactly like how you guys got it set up. So I'm happy that we took a stab at it and got that much right at least. It does seem like that, doesn't it? If there is a mentor role, there's a race coach, seems like it covers everything we spoke about. Um, the, the part that I'm curious about is the role of, I've forgotten her last name, but Narelle, where she sits in the performance team. Basically, within the team, we work with, um, uh, we have like a science department and that science department has different groups and then we call them expert groups. So for example, we have a, yeah nutrition experts, we have a bike fitting expert, a strength training expert, aerodynamics expert. And then trainers are sort of also one expert group, basically. So that's just, yeah, different groups um, working on different elements of performance. And then the main role of Norel is to, yeah, sort of coordinate those groups um, as a central point in terms of communication. And, um, yeah, she's then in close contact with the overall performance team, um, sort of to guide priorities and, yeah, sort of give a bit of direction, I guess, or just, yeah, keeping track of how every expert group is is progressing basically so she just tries to keep the overview because obviously everybody's sort of working in their own area and 
trying to um, yeah, make as much progress within that area as possible. But obviously, there's always multiple things you have to consider within the team. Um, and there's yeah, all those factors basically come to, have to come together. And she's the one having the overview and coordinating. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I have one other question before getting into kind of that, the nitty gritty or the outline of things is that, that I thought of when you were talking about the trainers. Um, so there's probably a number of you. How many is there, like a half dozen trainers or something like that? We have five trainers in the team. Yeah. Okay. So, But obviously, you have to see we also have a, a development team. So that's um, 16 riders. We have a women's team, which is 15 riders. So that, let's say you have around 30 already in that group, um, which are all trained by somebody from the team. And then we have 30 guys in the world tour. So, yeah, that's how it's then distributed across those, across those five guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, so my question is: is like how much, how much over overlap in terms of style and approach to training do you have with your colleagues, and how much independence do you have? Like, are you guys all say, is everyone using critical power, or is everyone using functional threshold power? Is that up to you and how you want to approach it? Um, maybe with your sports science background, your research background, are you influencing your colleagues in their practice and pointing them towards other directions? Is it an attempt to try to standardize things? What's the approach there? Yeah, well, I guess the main philosophy is is that we see each other as a trainer group, basically. So, And that's how we also then apply that to the training, to have as much consistency among each other um, and as much knowledge knowledge exchange as possible between the different trainers. So like we come from different backgrounds. We have, um, yeah, we have Kurt Bergen Taylor, who has quite some experience on the track and he also has done a PhD and we have, yeah, other trainers that have been worked in practice already for multiple years. So we have people with different backgrounds and we just try to, yeah, come together as much as possible to try to exchange experiences and exchange knowledge and then trying to have more of a uniform approach to training. So like when we're, talking about for example the setting of training zones testing practices um the use of critical power like we try to keep everything as consistent as possible so every um even the devo team women's team walter team we try to be as consistent as possible with yeah how we assess and then uh, assess the riders how we uh, monitor training so i think that's yeah for me is a real big benefit of working in a team because i know it's not in every team like that where Perhaps some trainers work somewhat more in silos and they have their own way how they do things, which obviously can work out fine. But personally, I find this um, a really nice approach because I really can learn from all the other guys in the team. And like if we, we discuss riders that we personally work with sort of as a, as a case study often. Um, so, yeah, I think from my perspective, that's a really nice thing about the team. So you can really learn a lot from each other. And still you have your group of riders of course where you are responsible for but yeah everything can be discussed within the group and that's yeah it's nice to have the thoughts of the others to to fall back on if you're a little bit in doubt yourself so i think that's a really nice thing about the team i i imagine um in that kind of setup when i'm just guessing but uh if you were going to make changes let's say like the team did decide to go from one type of testing protocol to another or decide to move from one training platform to another, it would probably wait until a season change or something like that. Like these changes, as opposed to if you're working by yourself, you might be able to pull that off in the middle of the season when the, or something like that. Do you guys have like a running list of like, these are the things we're going to like have talks about and make 
for next year or does it pretty is it pretty static from year to year or no it actually develops quite a bit i think it's obviously the more if we just talk about testing practices for example like since i started at the team like that's already evolved quite a bit and it also keeps continuously evolving like you test something out and then before you start you think yeah this is the way to do it and then you do the testing and then you find out oh maybe you have to tweak it a little bit and yeah, it's con- continuously trying to re- refine things. Of course, when we have something that we've done now for years and we know works and we have a solid database, obviously it would be stupid to move away from that because now we have a lot of normative data and reference values to compare to. But yeah, it's, it is sort of an iterative process where we're trying to optimize it throughout. And yeah, what we normally try to do indeed is like if we, we decide we're going to go ahead with this testing protocol or whatever, then we also just give that a good try it's not that if you do a few tests and we're not unsure about it that you bin it off completely i could just try to then yeah really do as much as possible with it and then try to learn from that and then maybe refine a little bit then for next year or i don't know for um the next half a year um but yeah it is true you're maybe a bit more um yeah, you can't really change things that quickly as, as if you would just be doing everything on your own but yeah uh, i don't feel that would limit our ability to move forward yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of testing, hashtag segue. Uh, let's let's go to the first topic that I kind of want to uh, grill you on here. Is um, so one of your, I think maybe one of your first research papers from your PhD had to do with field based testing, right? So you did, I think you did some analysis of an eight minute test. So I'm interested um, around like why you picked that length of test. What were your thoughts on the outcome of that study? Based on that, are you still using the eight-minute test? Yeah, I guess to uh, to understand where I come from, maybe a bit of background about like sort of the phase I was in at the time. Because like it's already been, I think, six years ago or something. It's been quite a while. Yeah, yeah. Since we did that study, but uh, basically, I was down the first phase of my PhD, and my whole PhD was focused on sort of the training process with its different variables, so training loads, fitness parameters, fatigue and performance assessments and we we're trying to yeah, look at different ways that we could assess those components of the training process and one of the studies that we wanted to do was sort of a, a systems modeling approach where you have a training phase in that training phase you do multiple performance trials and then we would wanted to see if one of those systems modeling approaches could actually predict performance um, and also in one of the studies where we looked at sort of tried to look at a dose response relationship um, we also wanted to have a performance assessment in the field. So we wanted to have a combination of sort of lab-based physiological variables and an actual functional test in the field. So then we were looking at different ways that we could test riders, of course. And I think then the 20-minute test was also quite popular. Um, but we were thinking, yeah, we have a training phase with these well-trained cyclists and we want to do multiple performance trials. The more, the better. Like, how can we find a balance between doing a performance test that's not too invasive and still gives us some information. So we like, we think we're thinking about like doing a 20 minute test regularly, but doing that like eight times in a, in a training phase is not going to get you a lot of participants to start with. And it's just very invasive. So then like for it, I always also found that eight minute test that Carmichael proposed. I think the original protocol was that you have to do it twice with a little break. Yeah. And based on that, do you estimate a FTP and yeah so basically then we thought yeah we also eight minute tests are used maybe that's a sort of a good duration about a performance test that we could then regularly implement and 
So in the end, it was more like, okay, we'll just try that because we wanted to balance out the practical side of things and what would have been optimal. And yeah, after also speaking to a few cycles and thinking myself, I thought, yeah, maybe an eight minute test is a bit less daunting than a 20 minute test to implement multiple times. So that was basically the rationale for looking into that. Um, yeah, and then when we did that study, I think the, the results are not really surprising, I guess. It's also quite in line now with a lot of the other research on sort of the 20-minute test that has come out in recent years. But I think the main conclusion of that paper was that if you do a, a one-off eight-minute trial and you try to relate that to physiological variables that you uh, assess in the lab, that they strongly relate to each other. But using a one-off test like that to estimate an FTP, you know, if it's eight-minute test or 20-minute test, whatever, that, that's where it sort of becomes a bit problematic. Um, so also when you do a 20 minute test, like it will relate strongly to some of those thresholds that you would assess in the lab. I guess it's like all of those thresholds are heavily, uh, or mainly, um, supported by aerobic energy provision, which is also a main contributor to the eight minute trial or a 20 minute trial. So I guess that, that makes it logical that there's going to relate, that they're going to relate to each other, but then using that one-off trial and using a percentage of that power to set a threshold that then becomes a bit problematic because just that decay that you assume is the same for everyone is just not the same yeah so i guess that that was also a conclusion of the paper that basically enough eight minute test and you can say the same for 20 minute test it just it becomes a bit more problematic on the individual level and yeah i guess that's yeah largely in line with a lot of the other stuff that came out in recent years and um yeah so if, if i had to look at that study now, I think the main thing I, I wanted to look at, like if you do eight minute test, does it relate to physiological variables? Yeah, it doesn't. I think that's also quite logical. Um, but to use that for training intensity zones or prescription or whatever, like I would be hesitant, hesitant about that. And I think like you've had now two podcasts largely around critical power and that yeah, is more of a, I would suggest is a more robust and scientifically validated measure of trying to determine your sustainable power. Um, and that would be a better way than just doing a one-off trial and take a certain percentage of that. Yeah. And, you know, individualize it a lot more when you have multiple trials. And that's, that's then also the approach I would advocate. Um, but yeah, my, yeah, my thinking for sure has come a bit away of a way since then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's all the, always the way it goes. I have, I have a good example of that for my research too. I did five by five research to, to estimate 20 minute power. I was like, Oh, if I get 20 minute power, then I'm going to estimate, I can estimate FTP off that. And then you realize like, now you're doing an estimate of an estimate of an, of a shitty version of threshold <laughs> basically. And I was like, but I still have that. Like, it's like, it's funny. Like I have it on a spreadsheet and if I need a quick and dirty way to figure out someone's 20 minute power, I could throw their five by five power into that spreadsheet. And yeah. there's my estimate kind of right. Yeah. But it's funny. We can actually in a meta sense, demonstrate how robust the critical power model is because we can actually use W prime and critical power to, talk about why the eight minute test isn't is great because you can get to that that same power um different ways and because that w prime would stretch uh over a shorter amount of time as opposed to 20 minute power then you have to stretch that w prime over a longer period of time right so i look at it like well yeah that, that's where a lot of that error could be coming from 
with physiological threshold measures is just because that W prime has less amount of time where it's stretching across, basically, um, if that makes sense. No, exactly. And I think I think also like the the difference, if you look at the difference between eight minute and 20 minute test, generally, I would say the longer the test is, the closer you're going to get. And also, like if you do the 20 minute test and you use and 95%, like it also shouldn't be massively off, but it is, you can individualize it to a, a greater extent if you do multiple trials and determine critical power that way. Yeah. yeah. But here's one thing I thought of though, too, is that like in the applied world and coaching is best way to go is if, man, if you can kill two birds with one stone or get like something else out of what you're doing with an athlete in terms of a testing situation. For example, if you're doing an interval session and you can track that power, then you are getting a little bit more information in it. But one of the things I was thinking, you know what? I was like, um, I'm trying to figure out like standard durations for what I want to use for my critical power testing. Well, now we have a couple of papers on eight minute power. So if I use an eight minute power duration regularly, I at least have your paper and a few other ones that I can look to that tells me a little bit something else. So you, you could not only, if you did, you know, your durations at maybe two minutes and eight minutes and 20 minutes or something like that, at least you could track the eight minute power as well. Right. So at least we have something in the literature now that is relating that eight minute power and it can actually come out as its own almost measure and metric that you could track along with it, even though it's not exactly precise or maybe as like a, um, as critical power or something like that. But isn't the, the big thing here, um, not trying to ask an athlete too much of an athlete too often. Mm-hmm. Like it seems like Dejo, this was part of your thinking to reduce it down, study it, see whether it's viable because we don't want to ask someone to do 20 minutes all out too often. But I'm, I'm curious where you're at now, what testing protocols, how often? Mm, yeah. Yeah. I think, um, it is, that was for sure the thinking at the time. And also because of the, the research design that we're trying to do, we're doing like repeating these trials quite often in a short time frame. Then we had to find a balance between what's too invasive and what's not. And, but like, I still agree also in practice, it's obviously not that easy to just have them do all our trials all the time. Um, so I guess that has a bit of an impact on the frequency, but if, if you look at what, what we're currently doing uh, at the team in terms of testing practice is that um, we use yeah, a mix of durations to try to profile the riders so sort of, I guess, sort of power profiling concept. So we use very short durations. So a 10 second sprint test, we do a one minute uh, test and we also do a three minute test and we do a 20 minute test. The reason for the 20 minute test is that originally, like when they started out with assessing the riders in this team before I was there, they did like the 20 minute test basically, um, mm-hmm. uh, always on the same climb in Spain. So we have quite a big database on, on da- like testing that 20 minute power on that climb. So we can also look at distance covered and time on the climb. Obviously it's a bit variable due to environmental conditions, but still we have pretty robust database on that. So that was mainly the reason why we, in the end, also for the long trial, went for 20 minutes and then we used a three minute and 20 minute power to calculate critical, critical power. Um, and then um, obviously, we also have quite a bit of data then for the rider on perhaps a five minute power or something like that that we can try to adjust the um, adjust the critical power used. Yeah, determine based on three parameters instead of two because obviously there's a bit of some limitations with that. If one of the tests is off, then we can throw the critical power off mm-hmm. massively. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you like what model you guys were using. Yeah, like I think what we use at the moment um, linear uh, work time model. Um, but I think we've also uh, used multiple models in the past and just looked at which one had the best fit and just went for that. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think most of the time we end up selling with the linear work time model. And if you're if you're quite confident that the trial was all out, then wasn't also that we found massive differences per se between some of the models but i guess that's the model we yeah mainly i guess the simplest way of doing it i guess also so we we then mainly use um so yeah, we yeah, yeah three and 20 minute power to calculate uh critical power and w prime and then we use yeah the three minute power also sort of as a lower bound of the anaerobic reserve and then use mm-hmm. that model to try to put a power duration curve on a really top real top end as well so using both of those models combined. I just got one one quick follow-up. I've got no problems with the 20-minute test for amateurs. Uh, I believe that you have to learn how to suffer. 20 minutes is a good round number to see where they're at mentally, how they're handling pressure and, and putting out power for that long. But as soon as I started to move into the pro world, there's there's always this talk about not asking professionals to do long tests. They don't want to do it. Don't let them do it. Um, do you have much pushback against a 20-minute test from the riders? Not really, but I'm not sure if that's because it's so almost ingrained into the team now that like it's just standard. Like we're gonna, If we go to the January camp in Colpe, then we're going to do a 3- and 20-minute trial. Um, so mm-hmm. it's not really that we got much pushback, but obviously it's not that everybody likes it too much to go 20 minutes all out. Um and also some can get quite nervous for that day too, but, um, not, not really. I think it's, it's not everybody enjoys doing it as much, but yeah, I, I think we also have quite some conversations about yeah the value of the information that we get out of it. And, and to some extent, like all, all athletes are quite insecure about how they're going and regardless of how good they are. And it is sort of an assessment along the way of how you are going. So I guess, they are a bit nervous about what the result might be, but they're also curious about what it will be because it can also be a bit of a confirmation of how they're going. Obviously, it's not the the end goal of what we're trying to do with them, that a 20-minute power should be the highest or whatever, but it will provide an indication of yeah how they're tracking it. Um, I think just the, the whole process of getting the whole sort of power profile of different durations, I think is just super useful to go through because it just can really give you a good indication of like strength and weaknesses of the rider and then give you an indication about, yeah, where you potentially want to move that rider towards. In terms of your philosophy and the strategy, I guess once the racing starts, like the testing is probably going to be hard to do. And then I would imagine is that just coming, a lot of that data is just coming off of what you would get out of competition. And when you don't have to worry about the competition phase, how often are you testing in that point? Do you guys kind of keep a standard six to eight weeks or is, it, or is it at a point where like, okay, we can go longer because it doesn't look like he's changed maybe his training load much over time or something like that. Mm-hmm. So what are you looking for cues to test or do you have a range of time? Yeah, like it depends a bit on the tests we use because besides sort of that power profile and functional assessments in the field, we also have some tests we'll do with some more physiological measures. Um, so we do like an incremental test with lactate measurements and we have another sort of sprint test with some lactate measures where we try to get a bit of an indication about, 
I guess anaerobic dominance or whatever you want to call it. Um, but so we have a yeah sort of a testing battery, and the frequency of testing just varies somewhat, and it will also depend a bit on um, the priorities that we have. So just one simple example is like I, I worked with a sprinter before, and his uh, short duration um, sprint power output was very high, like world class, I would say. Um, so that was a really high level. If you would just be looking at that, you would say, okay, this rider can can win sprints even in a world tour. But when looking at his one to two minute power, that was somewhat underdeveloped, strangely enough, um, compared to the, the really top end stuff. So then it'd be sort of made of a priority on trying to move that up just to make him more uh, comfortable and work at a lower percentage of his max during the last case of a race. Because that's right. what we saw is that he would already be at a high percentage of his max for those durate for those durations one to two minutes and then that would cause so much fatigue that he wasn't able to contest a good sprint anymore so mm-hmm. but then the priority on trying to move that duration up and then that would lead into testing that more frequently so if you don't have a focus block or we try to move that up then obviously we retest that um to see how that moved up but it doesn't then mean if he that we then go through the whole testing battery again so if it, it can also be that we can just test the one minute power and don't test the 20 minute power anymore um but yeah like from a from a general perspective we try to have at least two test moments where we go through the whole test battery and one is then often in sort of early preparation in january and then a lot of the racing starts and then often we are able to find a spot in sort of the middle part of the season when they sort of rebuild again towards the next uh, next goal especially with the lab-based variables, obviously we're bound to logistics. So it's not always that easy to, to get everybody tested so many times, but, and then with some of the field-based assessments, yeah, we can, yeah, there is the ability to, to test that more often. But as you also say, you get quite some indications also from some of the performance data you get in the race. Um, it might not be that if that's truly maximal for that duration, but it will give you an indication if that's moving in the right direction or not. And if you have confidence enough, that I, that that's the case, yeah. Then you could also choose perhaps to not always test, retest it again. But I guess just have the confidence that it is truly improving. But yeah, the best way would be to try to measure it regularly. But it is not always that easy if you have really busy training periods. I have one last question that's kind of random, but I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on in terms of um, you know the the whole smart trainer thing. They've been around for a while, but they're kind of blowing up right now. It seems to be like most people, most of my athletes, I think, have moved over the from the dumb trainer over to the smart trainer. Now, for me, it's always been Velotron <laughs> or dumb trainer, right? So I haven't had a lot of experience with the smart trainer stuff. So it looks kind of interesting on paper. Um, so I don't know how much exposure you've had to it. But I'm looking at it thinking, well, there's an opportunity here to kind of get somewhere in between field testing and lab testing now if someone sets up their smart trainer right now i know they're not the most accurate things in terms of the power that at least in my experience in terms of like what's at the rear hub but if you're just still using the power based off of your crank you might be able to still be able to do some great exercise tests and things like that you know you could set it up in a hotel room or something the athlete can do it anywhere so i don't know if you have had any thoughts or you guys are using that or yeah i guess we also use some indoor testing because I said we do the incremental exercise, uh, incremental uh, lactate test. Um, so we do that um, on the rotors indoors um, on a small trainer. And we're also now trying to implement some more VU2 max testing too, which we'll then do indoors. 
Um, but yeah, it is for sure in topic that I'm quite interested in. And I'm currently actually supervising a, a PhD student, Elliot Lipsky, who is um, currently working at uh, Alpacine. And he's doing a PhD actually looking into differences between indoor and outdoor performance assessments and cycling in general. And we've now completed one study um, that I think is just about to be submitted um, where we looked into, for example, critical power assessments or maximal trials to determine critical power indoor and outdoor. And we did it on yeah, a Tox uh, Neo Roller. And yeah, there we actually found differences between the indoor and outdoor results, especially like at the lower end. We also, I think, besides the, I think we did, from memory, three, five, and 12 minutes or something, and 10-second test and a one-minute test. So we use three, five, and 12 for critical power, three, five, and 14, at least around that range, for critical power. And then we have some lower, of shorter duration tests as well. And yeah, the difference between indoor and outdoor, especially at the top end, is quite large. It gets less what it looked like in the results the longer you go, but there was still quite a difference between also the longer duration trials indoor and outdoor. And the most interesting bit for me out of those, out of that study was that the individual differences were quite large. So there were some riders who had a big drop when they would go indoor and for others, the drop would be quite a bit lower. Um, and we're trying to speculate a little bit on what differences might be by might biomechanically related. It might be psychologically related. That's a bit hard to say. Obviously the, the crank inertia load on rollers is different than what it will be outdoors. So that might have an impact biomechanically, but yeah, the bottom line was that we found differences and yeah, that would be problematic if you try to use one to prescribe training outdoors. Um, and secondly, we also have some experience now that when, when we're doing, for example, lactate testing indoor versus doing a lactic, uh, a step test outdoor, um, obviously the protocols, they're not fully comparable, but we see quite big differences. Um, with some riders where the results we get them in on the rollers from like an incremental lactate test is just not yeah applicable to what we observe outdoors in terms even with the same power meter even with the same power meter yeah wow yeah interestingly we did a trial uh, quite recently and we did yeah, six minute steps inc uh, increasing the uh, intensity with each step measured on heart rate uh, and lactate at each step also measured rpe and then we did that we did the same power then afterwards outdoor on a climb where they would ride at that set power for that step, measure they stop at the top, we measure the lactate and then they go down. Obviously the difference then is that you have rest in between the steps, which is just, yeah, something we had to do because it was done outdoor. Mm -hmm. Some of the differences we saw within that were really large, but it also, it's again, really individual because with some guys, we don't see any differences or hardly any differences between indoor and outdoor, but with some the differences quite large and percent trying to explain why that is exactly the case but yeah that i think that can throw in some some problems if you if you rely fully on some of the results that you get indoor and try to translate that to training prescription outdoor um i'll throw one possibility at you um based off of an anecdote which is where a lot of hypotheses start uh, um so i'm from wisconsin we use, we ride indoors all the time in the winter and then i moved to perth and I didn't touch a trainer for like five or six years or something like that. And I was surprised how much my power dropped. So I'm kind of curious if there was any way to evaluate 
these athletes of like how often they train on a trainer versus how much they don't. And if you have people that train on a trainer a lot, just like people who train, you know, in an arrow position a lot. And I wonder how much that would have an effect on it because when it's that short, you're like, oh, it's not, it's not environmental, right? Unless their warm up was really long and it's really hot. So I'm thinking this again, like you bring up a good point about the biomechanical issues. So I'm thinking maybe it's just exposure to, um, riding on a trainer because riding on a trainer is it all looks like it's spinning your legs but it is slightly different there and where you apply your power i think but i i have coached athletes that have a higher threshold on the trainer i've seen that too i've had that as than well. outdoors mm-hmm. um because they're spending so much time indoors and optimizing for that position mm-hmm. but this is a pretty classic issue that's been around for a few years so I, i'm interested to see any data on this because anecdotally it's just you're trying to figure out where to put someone's threshold when they are going between the two a lot. It's a different yeah. sort of in the pro sense, but um, amateurs are using both a lot. And I, I'm finding that I'm, I'm having to do power curves for indoor and outdoor and then try and work between them. It is definitely something that we want to explore further. And maybe to reply to your first point about the exposure, that was also something that obviously was my first thinking. But yeah, we have some at least where it was quite a massive deviation and yeah, one athlete in there um, lives in an environment during the winter where it's very cold. So he spends a lot of time on the rollers and always has done also in the last years. But he is one of those where it actually deviates quite massively. And that's that was also a surprise to me. And yeah, I think maybe it's more in the biomechanics, but yeah, it is something we're definitely going to explore further with Elliot's PhD. Um, because I think it's a super interesting topic, especially like obviously with the indoor setups and Swift coming around and it made for sure indoor riding a lot more attractive, but in terms of training prescription, if we're going to prescribe, especially in the world where most of the training is going to be done outdoor because they're going to be in environments where that normally is possible or they go to a training camp. So yeah, making sure we have some understanding about those differences, I think is yeah, important. Yeah. One last question about it is, did they have a fan on? Yes. Fan. I had a fan on indeed. So, and also room temperature, um, we kept fairly low enough because obviously the main, first thing you think about is just like increases in core temperature and the heat playing a massive impact. You can, you can actually have without increases in core temperature, you can see decreases in stroke volume just in tachy, from tachycardia, just from exposure to heat, mm. just from skin temperature increases. Yeah. You know, without the hypothesis of the increased cardiovascular drift because you have more cardiac output going to the skin, even before that. Yeah, so that's why I asked about the fan, like just that thermal sensation within that very short amount of time could potentially be causing some increased tachycardia and resulting in a reduction in stroke volume. Indeed. Yeah, that, that for sure. But we, like the room we had, we tested in last, last time was yeah, sufficiently cold, I would, I would say. And also with the, we had some cooling through the fan, but... And it also starts to occur already at low intensity straight away. So that's also a bit odd. If it's like perhaps heat related, you would expect it to get worse the longer they're on the rollers as well. But yeah, we have some hypotheses around perhaps lateral sway of some of the riders when they ride outdoors. And if that's then made more static when they ride indoors, perhaps that's a contributing factor as well that you just move away from their most efficient way of riding a bike. Yeah, but it's all theoretical and th- thoughts at the moment but it's for sure an interesting interesting topic hey damien again and yes you guessed it 
I just want to take a quick break to say thanks for stopping by and listening to the show and remind you that if you find value in the show, it would mean a lot to us if you shared our content with other cycling performance enthusiasts in your life. Also, if you're seeking additional guidance in the world of cycling performance beyond what is delivered in our podcast, we are keen to help you. My co-host and I offer coaching services for cyclists and consulting services for cycling coaches and teams. Our objective is to provide support tailored to your specific goals and increase the level of confidence you have in your cycling performance pursuits. So definitely check us out online and contact us with any inquiries you may have. Links to each of our websites can be found in the show notes of this episode. And with that, let's get back into it. The next topic we were looking at was um, training intensity distribution, which is something I've been thinking about a fair amount. And I've actually, I think I've talked it with about it with different guests on, but I'm not sure if it's made it into a final cut yet because I always go on this like tangent. So I'd end up not publishing it, but you're the guy here. So uh, I definitely have some questions about this intensity distribution analyses in, in road cyclists. So we have the study, one of your studies where it was uh, entitled Training Intensity Distribution in Road Cyclists Objective versus Subjective Measures. And we've talked about training intensity distribution on the show a bit before it gets into conversations about polarized training and pyramid training schemes as well. But your study was interesting because it looked at, was it heart rate versus RPE versus power methods of looking at this and and yeah so this right off the bat the thing that i remember the, the most about it was like the rpe was just kind of a joke in terms of like trying to determine your training in- intensity distribution even though i would say like if someone had to guess their training stress or their training load after a workout it seems like that would be much more reliable than having them try to guess what zone or domain they were in training training in over the course of the over the course of the session. Um, but yeah, so what were your take homes about your training intensity distribution study? Hopefully, it's not not forcing you to think too far back now. But yeah, it was still a really interesting study. Yeah, I think yeah, the main thing we tried to look at was just using different ways to quantify training intensity distribution. I guess heart rate and power are the most obvious ones and also the most used. The whole idea about that RP intensity distribution came from a study that Steven Seidler did uh, some years before that, where they mm-hmm. tried to quantify that in, uh, I think, in cross-country skiers. Um, so yeah, we just wanted to do it in three ways, quantify it and then see what difference we would observe. And yeah, I guess... Obviously, there was more uh, more of an alignment between the power and heart rate intensity distribution. The only difference was that the power had some more higher inten- like um, time at zone three. So if, yeah, if you talk about the zones now, then I think for those most of the studies, it's defined into a low, moderate, and high intensity zone. And then that's also what we did within the studies. So then the low intensity zone is sort of everything above your first metabolic inflection point being that uh, first ventilatory threshold, first lactate turn point, whatever. And then um, the second threshold, sort of second ventilatory threshold, second lactate turn point, perhaps critical power, whatever you want to use for that second turn point. 
those are the two thresholds that demarcate the zones. So we have zone one is below the first one, zone two is between that first and the second one, and zone three is everything above that. Or the, the way it would come out of like Jones's pools lab would be moderate, heavy, and severe. Yeah, indeed. Same. Yeah, the three domains, instead of like zone three being tempo, right? Exactly. Yeah, so just to clarify. Yeah, I think for simplicity of the discussion, it's just best to talk about the three zones because like that low, moderate, high, basically. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, it's, exactly. it's so, And even with that, like how you define the thresholds has such a big impact on the distribution you're mm-hmm. going to get. Like we, for example, use like a first lactate turn point as the first threshold and critical power as the second one. But if you use something different to CP, I don't know, some sort of a lab-based variable, that can already make it quite different to some of the distributions you're going to see. So I think that that's the main thing about all this research, that it makes it quite hard to compare because there's so many methodologies used. One uses ventilatory thresholds, one uses solely lactate measurements, one uses a combination of field and lab-based variables. That makes it quite difficult to compare, actually. But yeah, I guess, I guess the, the conclusion of that study was that there are just differences between different methods of doing it. So if you do it based on heart rate, based on power, that you're going to see yeah, differences within that. Some are quite logical because, for example, with what we saw in the study, that the power of time at higher intensity was higher than for heart rate, which mm-hmm. to my view is then just explained by, you know, like shorter accelerations and yeah, shorter bursts of higher intensity are then collected in the zone three bucket for power. But if it remains fairly short because of the lag in heart rate, it doesn't sort of get up mm-hmm. those higher intensities. So I guess the power is then a bit more sensitive to acute changes in intensity and there's obviously a bit of a lack with the physiological response so i guess that's yeah i guess quite quite logical i would say and then with the rpe um i think what that mainly showed is that you know riders can or or the athletes that we had that is that using it as an intensity measure can be sort of problematic because if that would have been you would actually ideally it would align more to what you see from the objective stuff but let's say they do um, a five hour ride and there's yeah. some sort of moderate intensity in there but overall the intensity if you look at a power perspective fairly low they might still rate that as a pretty hard day but then I guess it's more than the overall stress of the whole session becomes is then also reflected and the duration is also reflected in their RP measurements instead of them solely giving a number for the intensity. And maybe it also has to do with education on using the RP scale in the proper way. But I think those are just explanations yeah, why it's actually off because really long duration, yeah, might long duration, low intensity session might actually be perceived as hard just because of the duration. But then there's just a mismatch between their perception and what the actual power intensity shown or the, the what their average heart rate was for that whole whole uh, session so that's where sort of that mismatch occurs yeah i think one of the re- one of the considerations i guess for that study is that they were in a pre-season preparation phase so like the bulk, bulk of training was like lower intensity and it was some higher intensity towards the end but it was if i remember correctly like december january february time so they were in preparation for the season but i guess the there was a higher proportion of lower intensity training there than what they would normally have. It didn't include any races or anything like that. That for sure also has an impact on what you will see. Yeah. I think that the main takeaway point from that study is just that there are differences and that it just, and that it's fine that there are differences because that the reason that there are differences also makes them useful to use them in conjunction with each other. But okay. mm-hmm. that, yeah, you don't use them interchangeably, but use them, as a combination and then actually the differences can give you additional information and that 
and that's in the end what contributes to the author. Yeah, that was one of the questions I had for you. I was going to see if I could bait you into which one was better, but obviously, no, not a sports scientist isn't going to look like that. It'd be like, why not both, right? So, um, in terms of best practice, yeah, I think I would agree. I would want to have both of those alongside of each other and trying to see what patterns I could kind of develop out of looking at both of them and how they changed over time. Um, what, what do you look in your power versus your, um, your, your heart rate intensity distributions? Are you doing it the three zone model or are you using a five zone model or how, how are you guys doing it like in practice? Yeah. So in practice, in terms of zone prescription, we have, a seven zone model um, and that's just basically binning the three zones into smaller proportions out of ease of training prescription I guess and where we feel that it would um, warrant a slight deviation um, because obviously if you think about zone one if that's up until the first like the initial increase in lactate above baseline or whatever for some yeah professional riders that might be whatever 300, of watts. Yeah, 340 watts so then you have a range of zero to 340 and then you say oh, yeah do a low intensity session yeah that's a pretty big range you know so you want to differentiate that a bit further to make sure you have a bit more control about the demand of the session um but then like for simplicity's sake obviously when at least how i would do it if i analyze a whole year or something and i want to compare year on year i often also just yeah have a three zone model alongside it just to yeah to compare for example long training blocks also just because from a physiological perspective we have more certain that if you go certainty if you go above these two thresholds that we know physiologically there's mm -hmm. quite a few things that change so then you more mm -hmm. certainty that you're actually looking at yeah um yeah comparison between zones where there's significantly different physiological events occurring i guess um and then in terms of the heart rate and power, as I said before, I think it's, I would just advise to use both um, from an intensity distribution perspective and use all three power, heart rate and RPE in overall monitoring practice. Um, because there's quite a large body of research on this now where actually it becomes useful when you have all three. And that's also something we showed within a study where we analyzed professional cyclists within, within a grand cycling grand tour. And then we also measured like objective measurements. So we did like TSS, we did session RPE, we did trim measures, we did yeah, a whole lot of variables objective and subjectively and tracked that throughout a grand tour. And you can see changes within a grand tour um, when the fatigue is accumulating. So for example, we looked at a ratio between session RPE and TSS. And you could see quite some increases from week to week within that Grand Tour. So for the whatever same 300 TSS, from memory, I think the session RPE, so the RPE of the session multiplied by the duration, was like 400 units higher or something like that. So quite a big difference, even though you have the same objective amount of work with TSS. Yeah, perceptually, they rate that's at a very yeah at a, at a much higher rate just because they are fatigued so that's just an example of when you use subjective and objective measure in conjunction with each other then you just get yeah very useful information from it from an adaptation perspective and from a from a fatigue development perspective so for example looking at power to heart rate ratio and trends within that in your training phases is, is something quite useful in my view because it can give you an information of that 
same power is physiologically less taxing if the heart rate is lower. But if there's instances where they're really fatigued, for example, they can't get the heart rate any- up anymore after they just come out of a grand tour, for example, then the RP can add the additional contextual information because if then the RP is actually higher for that same power, yeah, then actually it could be more of an indication of a fatigue state instead of an improved in improvement in their uh, fitness levels. Um, so I think, yeah, the combination of all three is something I would really advise. And this like structural way of doing this with, with, with uh, like the LSCT test, for example, where um, you also measure three variables and then make inferences if somebody's adapting or getting fatigued based on the trends in those three data points. And then generally just throughout your monitoring practice, yeah, having subjective alongside objective measurements is, is something I would really advise because you can get a lot of useful information out of that without necessarily having to do an all-out test or whatever. You still get quite some information from that. I think that was the one or two Dejo paper I didn't get to. It was on the list and I just didn't get to it. But yeah, now I'll have to like check it out because it looks really interesting. One, I, yeah, I don't have my athletes do subjective you know when i look at uh kind of your retrospective analyses especially the one that you've done the papers you've done with tune and joss uh it's impressive to see that you would have these athletes with four years of rpe data but that's i mean i don't know how tough it is to get the athletes to 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 put that down but like in this in this day and age of put your heart rate matter strap on the power meters already on the bike you walk in the door and you hit the save button. As soon as you're within the distance of the Wi-Fi, it's on spot. It's Spotify. It's it's on um, uh, Strava and it's in Training Peaks. Just having that mindfulness to step over to, and open up your app and or whatever they would have to do, record the sessional RPE to, to do that um, could be tricky. Maybe it's more tricky with amateur athletes than than pro athletes, um, but. Kudos to you guys for thinking of that. I know it's just basic lab stuff, right? Like you always take an RPE when you do a graded exercise test, but to kind of deliver deliver that like little bit of subjective bit of data recording is very good forethought. Yeah. And yeah, like I could see how people would be like, what do we need RPE for when we have heart rate and, and power? But that's really neat that you had those, those findings ar- around that. Yeah, maybe just to quickly respond on that one, because I think you can make a distinction actually between two, two ways of going about it. Like you can either have your athlete give an RP after every training session. And I guess the way to make that sustainable is that it almost has to be part of the system that you're using. Like, for example, we have our own designed logbook where that's just part of it. And then if it's part of the system that they need to fill in anyway, then it already becomes easier. But like you guys also know if it's something that they need to do outside of the standard thing, it already becomes more problematic or they forget or whatever. But that's one approach you can go about. And obviously when you have that data, it can be quite useful. But the other way of going about it without per se having the need to measure it after every training session is just that you have certain sort of sub-maximal tests that you plan in every six to eight weeks or something. They can be in a world or whatever. Um, and then collect all three variables. So for example, one some one simple thing that I've often done is to have them ride at two stages um, indoor on the rollers at home. And after one roller setup, they do two stages, 10 minutes at two submaximal uh, power outputs. Um, then 
So the power is going to remain constant for every time you do that test. Then we look at the heart rate response and they rate their RP in the last minute of that 10 minute bout. Then you also have all three variables in a more of a controlled setting. And then you use those three variables combined to make inferences about how, if somebody, like how they're responding to training, basically. So generally, like if you're looking at it from a sort of early preparation to late preparation, you would expect to see that the heart rate at that power drops because then that same power becomes physiologically less taxing. Um, and RP should then also drop for that same power. But if you get into the season, then there's going to be phases where they're going to be more fatigued. There might be instances where either heart rate is the same or it's even lower, but then RP is substantially higher. And then again, it's an it's, um, indication of fatigue. So that's just another example that it, you almost need to have all three to make the right yeah, conclusion about the data. Because if you just have the heart rate and it's lower, it's not always a good thing. And if you, if you have the RPE, you have more confidence that it's fatigue related. So just something very simple, sub-maximal that you can repeat at home just becomes then super useful just by collecting those three variables. So yeah, that's something that I, yeah, it's very simple, but can have quite some impact in practice and can give you quite some yeah, structured information in a yeah, sort of controlled environment. Yeah, yeah. And so I have two kind of nitty gritty uh, questions for you around training intensity distributions. And that's for me, like, I can't say that I've uh, exhausted all outlets by any means, but I really haven't found a good way to do a three domain intensity distribution analysis on any of the commercially available programs. Are you guys using your own software? You kind of alluded to something maybe there, or is, is are you finding this available within uh, some of the commercial ones that are available? And by that, you mean just having it the data analysis tools like training peaks wkl5 golden cheetah any of those yeah like in the in the i guess in the simplest way uh, in training peaks you can design your own zones so mm-hmm. if you want to yeah. do that within a three zone model then every session should be analyzed that way but also in wko5 you can um sort of bend the power in different zones as well so then you can basically design what thresholds you want to use to set those zones so yeah within either training peaks or wko5 you can yeah wko5 obviously have a bit more flexibility to design your own things and stuff and there you could that's at least what i often use to yeah get like a three zone analysis of a training phase um but yeah we also have yeah we have like a a data expert as well who's part of those expert groups who also does uh, training evaluations and then yeah, also makes sort of time and zone and then, yeah, percentage distribution overviews for the riders. The, the wall I hit with training peaks was that, you know, I came to a point where I was like, well, time and zones is not the same as time and domain. And so I had all this historical data that was using Coggin zones and those distribution distributions are not going to be the same. You know, if you're using a five or seven zone model, um, I can't remember. I mean, it might have even been six. I can't remember now. Um, that's that's not going to be the same as that nice kind of uh, three three domain model. And the, ni- the nice thing about using the three domain model is that it you can compare what your athlete's doing with all of the retrospective analyses that have been done uh, with pro athletes and amateur athletes. You know, there's 
tons of um, literature around that. And when I contacted Training Peaks asking them, like, well, how do I do this? They're like, well, why would you want to do it differently than what your training zones are set at? I'm like, because, you know, I want to compare it with the literature. And then in order to do that, you, you have to manually go through, you have to set up the zones differently and then manually go through and re-save every single workout manually. So it's very tricky analysis within Training Peaks. And then um, uh, Damien is our resident WKO5 expert here. And I asked you about uh, if there's anything that would do a three-zone analysis. And I got uh, the the Norway model from you or the Norway chart. And unfortunately, yeah. Someone else's chart, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah, and it's a three zone model, but unfortunately, all the Norway stuff is set up on percentage of max heart rate, which yeah, it's not as good. It's not going to be as good as being set up off of the thresholds, right? But but in, in uh, WKO five, you can also um, yeah make your own thresholds and base a three zone model on that. So there is possibilities within that. There's like a yeah. function where you bin the power based on the thresholds you put in. So that's a way of doing about it. And then it just looks at the time spent in those different bins. And then if you want to, yeah, you can divide that by the total time for that um, selected time frame, And that gives you the percentage distribution as well. So there, is yeah. a, there are options to, to go about it. Indeed. Good. That's my own ignorance. Thank you. <laughs> Work harder, Jason. Work harder. I know. I'm just, I'm just a busy guy. I'm, I'm a, uh... Um, speaking of sub max tests and doing field tests, I've been kind of, I've been working on a, um, talk test and I went through a bunch of the Carl Foster's literature on it and the studies that he's been associated with. I know you've worked with him, I think a little bit. And one of the things I realized was with the talk test is that the steps that they used to validate it were like 50 watt steps. It's a big difference. So I was like, well, I'll, I'll come up with one of the smaller steps. And I went off a small percent of critical power and I've been kind of playing around with that with my athletes, but I'm finding because the steps are so close together, it gets really hard to figure out where that breaking point in their, in their speech is. And I'm trying to figure out like how useful it is. But uh, yeah, if you ever want to have a conversation around that, I'd be happy to have it because I'm, um, because it gets into the point where you're like, oh, well, I, I set up an estimate for 75% of critical power to figure out where that breaking point is going to be. And then like, okay, well, how much of this is going to be my own bias is listening for it specifically around that area. So right now I'm just trying to figure out how useful it's going to be, but it gets back to that. Like, well, we have this, we have these smart trainers that can do basically a kind of a lab test, a great exercise test anywhere. I just don't have a met cart to do to get ventilatory measures. So maybe if I do this talk test, I can get that threshold, that first threshold anywhere. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but uh, yeah, that's been on my mind lately. Yeah, that's, that's, that's not something I've really looked into or uh, considered too much. I think it's, I guess the whole principle obviously is quite valid, but it's just in them trying to, um, identify that within individual athletes, yeah, that perhaps makes it a bit more difficult. It's also something I guess is quite unusual maybe for them to do. So then mm-hmm. maybe add some variability. But yeah, like it, it is just the whole concept of trying to look at ways where we could determine sort of that first threshold in a non-invasive way is quite interesting. Like there's a lot of stuff now coming 
uh, out about like doing it based on HRV data and uh, the DFA Alpha One. Exactly. Yeah. I also haven't looked into that yet, but that seems quite interesting. Yeah, um, I'm in the same place. I don't know how many rants I've gone on it on the podcast. I have to edit them out, but <laughs> yeah, I actually talked to Bruce Rogers one time. Right. I just said it like I was like, "This is exciting. This is really exciting." And yeah. because it gives you the opportunity also to like, I did an ideal way. Like, you want to measure that multiple times or as often as possible, or at least often enough during the year. Let's say it that way. And like we do it now based on lactate measurements. But yeah, we're really bound by logistics and can't really then measure maybe that often as we want to. And then something like that where it's actually non-invasive. Yeah, that makes it super interesting because then... It fits with any any type of submax testing that you want to do. Exactly. You would roll it out. It, it was something that I thought of. It would be the first test of the year for someone. Not too challenging. Yeah. One of the things I'm thinking about with the talk test is, okay, well, what happens if I establish that it's something boring, like it's always 75% of critical power? You know, like big whoop, Jason, you've just basically done what the zones are doing automatically anyways, right? Because endurance is starting at 75% and below, or the top end of endurance in Coggins uh, zones are 75%. But the thing is, if you consistently see that with an athlete, and you know they're coming back from an injury or being sick or something like that and you don't want to have to do a bunch of critical power tests to get that threshold their uh upper uh anaerobic threshold set maybe you could just do uh like um, a submax test with uh on one of these great exercise tests to kind of get an estimate of where they are until they're back on form that's one of the thoughts to kind of using just to kind of justify it just in case um, but the other thing is like, well, maybe it will track above and below it. Um, but I don't know. It could be one of those things where like with W prime or if you're really trying to track W prime over time, it's like, yeah, good luck because there's just, you know, so much air in it, um, error in it. But uh, yeah, those are just some some of my thoughts around the training intensity distribution. Thanks for filling in my ignorance there in terms. I figured somewhere is someone's got to be able to do this easy easy enough we're stopping the episode right here and we're going to make this part one of a two-part conversation with dejo with someone as sharp as dejo it's hard to stop talking shop with him so you will just have to wait for more goodness next time to wrap up part one subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and if you liked this episode please share it with one person you think would find it valuable thanks thanks